we're going to be studying Genesis 5 through 6. If you need a Bible, you don't have a Bible, we study the Bible here at Cornerstone and, and uh, every Wednesday night, and we go verse by verse through Genesis. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to loan you one. If you need a Bible, don't have one, you can keep that. That's a gift from us to you. But we are going to look at some genealogy tonight, and uh, I know that it's not typically the place that we land at when we're doing our, our morning devotions. It's, it's not uh, the, the usual place that we go to when we're, you know, we're really struggling with faith. We're, we need some encouragement, Lord. Oh, man, chapter 5, the genealogy of Adam. This is, this is right where I need to be. It's, it's not the typical place we go to but it is the inspired, infallible Word of God, and there's such importance uh, to the genealogy as we're going to kind of read through, and uh, we're going we're gonna to make it through this chapter pretty quick, but there's definitely some important things that we can pull out of genealogy. Make sure we want to hit on that before we get to chapter 6, where we jump in and hear about the time of Noah and what God is doing to bring judgment on a wicked people. And the hearts of man has grown corrupt, and their thoughts are evil continually. But there is one man and his family that God preserves in the midst of judgment. And I will tell you, chapter 6, yes, might be a little bit more exciting, but both chapters are going to have such great, rich insight for us to learn and glean from from the Lord. So let's just go to the Lord in a quick word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we do as your church get the privilege to come to you seeking truth in your word. We thank you that, Lord, we can hang on and cling to the promise that your sheep hear your voice and that, Lord, your voice is going to be present tonight speaking to our hearts as your church Lord, lead us now in Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis 5, we're going to kick it off, verse 1. It says this, This is the book of genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years, and he begot a son in his own likeness after his image, the na and named him Seth. After he begot Seth in the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh and after he begot Enosh, Seth lived 870 years, and his sons and daughters, so all the days were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 900 years and begot Canaan, and after he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 850 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Melchizedek, or Malkelo lived six, 65 years and begot Jared. And after he begot Jared, Malkish lived 800 years and 30 years and had sons and daughters. So were all the days of uh, Malkish 
and we're 890 years, and he died. Uh, Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and his sons and had sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Verse 21, probably the most exciting name we're going to see in this genealogy. Enosh lived six. Fifty-five years and begot Methuselah. And Methuselah, and he begot Methuselah. Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 360 years. And Enoch walked with God and was not. And God took him. You know, it's interesting as we read through these genealogies, the one common theme that we see in every single person, every single lineage of these genealogies is that they were faithful and obedient to God's command to be fruitful and to multiply and to, to increase and spread and, and populate the earth as it was God's original design, as we read in verse 1 of chapter 5, that they were image bearers of God. And one of the beautiful things that we as image bearers have been given is this awesome privilege to create and to create others after our image and likeness as we saw Adam did with Seth. Now, in that, we see that people are rapidly expanding and they're having children, and they're having children. And, and in that, there's one common theme we see until we get to Enoch, is that death was a part of the judgment and the curse of the fall of Adam. And it is quite sad to read through genealogy and just every single person after Adam dies. And death is so evident in chapter 5 that God's pronounced judgment because of sin, that death entered the world, and man, since that time, has yet to figure out where to find the well of life that man would drink of and live eternally. But something very, very peculiar happens when we meet, read about Enoch, is that he was a man who walked with God. And in this genealogy, we see that there's something different about Enoch, something different, something important, something that sets him apart from all of his fathers, is that he was a man who walked with God. Now, it's interesting to note about the wording here that he walked with God, only two, man, two men in the Bible are ever referred to in this light, that they walked with God, Enoch being one of them, and we see he is taken, he is no more, and the other one is Noah. As we're going to read in chapter 6, that there is a certain blessing that God has for these two men, this preserving blessing from judgment that we're going to read about that 
There's something that was set apart about them from their neighbors and from their fathers. They were men that walked with God, and God did a special work and had a special blessing for these men. As we're going to see in chapter 6, we're going to discuss a little bit more. But he walked with God, and then he was no more. God took him. As though there was something special about Enoch that, that God cherished and loved. To walk with God is, is, speaks of a deep, intimate relationship that through every step and through life, God was a companion next to him. And again, as I said earlier, Noah we're going to see a very similar relationship that Noah possessed and a very similar type blessing in God's preservation of Noah's life. So Enoch did not die. He did not perish. But God had took him. Which, as many Bible scholars have noted, it is a picture of the rapture that God would preserve the church through the coming judgment in the return of Christ and the apocalypse through a rapture like he did with Enoch. But we're going to read on. After Enoch, there's some more descendants before we get to Noah. But we read of the next character, Methuselah, lived 180 Seven years, and he begot Lamech. And he begot Lamech. Methuselah lived 782 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And if you didn't know, Methuselah being the longest living, uh, longest living person in the Old Testament that we read of in this genealogy, 900 Man, that's, that's a lot of years to live on the face of the earth. I'm sure he had some serious back pain, aches and pains, poor, his poor wife. Many, many years to be alive. But he had a son, Lamech, lived 182 years, and he had sons. And so he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord had cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all of the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 6. Now it came to pass when... Man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. So through the genealogy, what is one thing that is very, very evident? They were being fruitful. They were multiplying. They received the commandment God had given to be fruitful and multiply. Isn't that wonderful? You know, it's so interesting to think that God gave this commandment to be fruitful and multiply. It seems like this is one of the few, like the one of the few things that God gave to us that we've actually responded in obedience to. And 
it's interesting to note that God put every, all the desire within man and women's heart to make that commandment fulfilled, right? It's, it's almost like God giving us the commandment to blink and then us saying, yeah, awesome job. We did so well in obeying that command. It was naturally put into us. God gave us this command and gave us all the desires within the hearts of man and woman uh, to fulfill the commandment, to be fruitful, and to fill the earth. And what we see is though sin entered the garden, though death entered, and the curse that came through death and through sin, men and women were still successful in having babies and getting married and being fruitful. And what we're doing and seeing here in chapter 6 is now something's going to start to happen in this 1,615-year period as we go through the genealogy and they kind of do all the math of all these, these, uh, these people. 650 years has passed since Adam to Noah through all of the genealogy. It's a good amount of time that has passed but thinking how long they lived, I mean, it's really not that much time. It's really only a few generations. And to think Noah was only a couple of generations removed from firsthand account of the fall of Adam and Eve. It's almost like us thinking, or maybe somebody, uh, somebody that, that is, is, is kind of younger that we have pretty close firsthand account of World War I or maybe even the Civil War. It really wasn't that long ago. We're only a few generations removed from firsthand account of this. So 1,650 years has passed. People are spreading throughout the earth. They are developing culture, nations, cities. They're developing music and art and work and they are marrying they're partying they're establishing these things that humanity through all of creation and history have naturally done as God's created beings as we were created in his likeness we have reigned on this earth and have a dominion over this earth and creation that God has given it to us as his creatures created in his likeness. We have the ability to create and develop and establish and invent. And they were successful at it. And then we get to these really important verses as we start to see something happen because sin was so prevalent on the earth that man's heart is starting to grow so cold and so rebellious that we get to chapter 6. And we see this. Verse 2, Now the sons of God were, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they had chosen. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterwards 
when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, we get to some really juicy good things in the Bible, something that has been debated by many of scholars in the church for many, many years. It's who are the sons of God? And who are these giants that Moses, as he writes the Pentateuch and he writes the book of beginnings, who are they? And why does Moses, through the inspiration of God, put them in this text just to confuse us? And just to cause us to debate and argue over something that seems to be so meaningless to our current life here on earth. So we're going to dig in, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this section because I do believe this is something that really is not too important to our everyday Christian life. But I do believe it's inspired, and I do believe it's here for a reason. So who are the sons of God? And it's interesting to note that he's referring to two things here in this verse, and that's the sons of God and the daughters of men. Okay, so there's a couple of ways that the sons of God are interpreted. So I'm going to kind of give you some different interpretations, some different thoughts on who the sons of God God are. And, you know, maybe you agree with one, maybe you disagree with another, or maybe you think that you know something very contrary and different and you are right. And if that's the case, Pastor Mark would love to hear about that after the sermon. You can correct Correct me through him. But the offspring or the sons of God being referring to the offspring of Cain. So we see that Adam has children, okay? And he's got an offspring of Seth who is referred to as, as his, the righteous offspring. And we know Cain being the son who killed his brother Abel. And we also know that the Messiah did not come through Cain, but came through Seth, as we read the genealogy in Mark. So some believe and interpret that the sons of God are the descendants of Cain, intermarrying with the descendants of Seth, for the purpose of diluting the offspring of Seth and also stopping the line of the Messiah through God's anointed Seth. Some would argue and believe that that were to be sons of God. I personally don't agree with that interpretation. I believe that leaves us with more question marks than it does answers. And the other belief uh, interpretation of the sons of God being that these are speaking of angelic beings. That the sons of God referring to those who were directly created by God. That 
Truly only Adam would be able to be called a son of God because he was directly created by God. And all of those after Adam in the genealogies would be referred to sons of men or daughters of men. This is believed by a lot of scholars that, and reason being, sons of God referred to in the Old Testament two times in Job, Job chapter 1, chapter 2, both times referring to angelic beings, okay? And there's other things that you can refer to in the New Testament, I believe, that refer to these angelic beings, these sons of God being reserved for judgment, referring to Jude and also 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20. And again, I'm not going to get too much into this topic. I'm just sharing with you, that's where I land personally. You might disagree. Mark would love to hear about that. And again, more important than who the sons of God are, we need to understand the context of chapter 6, that really what Moses is pointing to is where sinful man and the state of sinful man is in this time before the coming judgment of the flood. See, we see that there were, and, and, and a very depressing verse to read, verse 3, points us to what God has planned for Man, because of the wickedness in, in their heart. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. S some believe that this is referring to God shortening the days of man on earth, referring to the life expectancy that we see Methuselah living 900 plus years, but after the flood, God starts to taper off that after Noah, who only lives so many years, and then his children, and ultimately brings man to the point where they really only survive 120 years on the earth, which is really testified of in really the oldest people that ever in history outside of those in the genealogy we read in Genesis after the flood is about 125 years, I, I believe, is the oldest person that has ever lived on the earth. Some believe that is what God is referring to here, but I actually lean to a different interpretation that speaks of God preparing the way for this coming judgment because of the wickedness of man, the state of man, that his spirit was not going to dwell with them any longer. It has gotten to a point of no return where he's going to wipe out humanity in 120 years. And that this period is setting kind of a course, a clock, for which Noah in this 120-year period is going to build the ark. He's going to preach, the, he's going to preach faith and righteousness. And in this 120 years period, period, God has set a clock to which judgment is going to come. We read of these giants and speaking of 
what is happening on the earth at this time during the time of Noah. There were giants on the earth in those days. And he says, and afterwards as well, when the sons of man came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, they were the mighty men of old, men of renown. So we spoke about the sons of God and who the sons of God are. We understand that it could be interpreted as fallen angels or demonic spirits who are choosing to defy and rebel against God's design for them, as we read in Jude 1, and they are taken on a form that God had not created them for, and they are marrying the women on the earth, okay? Now they are giving birth to offspring, and these offspring may or may not be the Nephilim. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But understand this, as we look at the context of this chapter, thinking of where the state of humanity is, humanity has gotten to the point where they are no longer just talking to demons, right? And we see that in the creation account in the Garden of Eden when Mary was what? Talking to the devil. She's having a conversation. She's engaging with the devil. And how did that turn out for humanity? See, we thought that was bad. See, they've moved from just engaging with the enemy to now lying down and willingly engaging in marriage and producing offspring with the demonic world. See, that's a, that's a place of a debased, perverse mind that really brings God to a place where he looks at the state of humanity and he decides that a judgment is going to come, that his spirit shall not strive with man forever. And as we read on in the section, we really get this really depressing, hopeless picture when God looks at humanity with sorrow in his heart, when the thoughts and intents of their heart are evil continually. There's perversion in strange ways that man has offered themselves and willingly gave themselves over to these perversions. So, we read now of the offspring of what we believe to be these perverse marriages with the demonic world, and they give birth to children. Now, if a demon and a woman get married, what do you think their offspring are going to look like? Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, you could probably look it up online and find some creative imagery of what they think these offspring looked like, but there is something very off about what the enemy and humanity have produced in these marriages. 
Now again, going back to understanding what it is that the enemy was doing in this. And everything that we see throughout the Old Testament in the plans and the plots of our enemy, Satan, is always for the purpose of putting an end and stopping what God promised after the fall, that the seed of the woman would squash the head of the serpent. That throughout the Old Testament into the New, we see God's perfect plan of redemption that the seed of the woman would prevail and Jesus would come. But everything the enemy is doing in this story is trying to pervert and corrupt the plan of God in redemption to squash the head of the serpent. So we see that through intermarriage with demons, God or, or the, the enemy is trying to stop the line of the Messiah. He's trying to pervert our genetic DNA in ways that would stop the seed of the woman producing the Messiah that would squash the head of the serpent. So, verse 4, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterwards. So, let's take note here. Moses is speaking of giants, okay? Now, we know that there were giants in the land when the, the Israelites were about to go in or in the time of Joshua and the reports of the spies, Caleb and and there's giants referred to throughout the Old Testament. So there are giants in the land or on the earth in the times of Noah and also after the ark and after the flood. Which brings us to another question and another debated interpretation. Were these giants, which is in the Hebrew referred to as Nephilim, were they the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of women, or were they not? Well, it is believed that they are the offspring of these demonic unions with the daughters of men. And these were the men of renown, the men of, of these legends that the world during the time of Moses, Mesopotamia, these people were so prevalent to believe. Speaking of the story of the many of the stories that these nations had. But what I want to do is try to say, why is this section here? What is it that God is trying to speak to the nation of Israel in Moses writing this that it's important for them to know and understand, but for us, this many years later, to wrestle through to understand because we don't have the mentality and understanding of the culture of the day that the Israelites were living in. So here's my best attempt. The giants on the earth in those days and the days after were not the offspring of the sons of God or the daughters of men. But 
but the offspring of the nef or the, the, the not the nephilim, but the offsprings of the sons of God, these demonic unions with men, they were the men of renown spoken of by Moses. Also, the legends of the demigods that were in these many, many nations during the time of Moses. Now, I promise I'm going to wrap this up and we're going to move on because I didn't want to spend this much time on this. The reason that this was so important for Moses to write on, the nation of Israel was about to go into a land that had giants in it. Now, if you were a soldier about to go against giants and you believe these giants were demigods who were direct offspring of demons, what would that make you feel about going to battle with them? Yeah, I wouldn't be online to be at the front of that army. But that was a perverse idea. That was legend that was happening within the people of that time and day, that these demigods were of old, but God wiped them out in the judgment that we see of the flood. So there were giants in that time, and there were giants afterwards, which I would question if the Nephilim were truly the descendants of these demons how did they get on the earth after the judgment of the flood? And that's where I believe that it really produces more questions than it does answers to interpret it in that way. Again, the word Nephilim used one other time in the Bible. It's spoken of the giants in the land in Numbers 13.33. We read in Jude... One, I'm going to turn over there, and this is kind of how I'm going to end this part of this section. Jude 1, which is a small little book before Revelation, says this. Jude 1, 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own adored he has re reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. And then also 1 Peter 3, 16 through 20 speaks of when Jesus was, was, was dead in the grave, he went and declared victory to the spirits in chains which, again, it is believed to be these angelic beings that God judged during the time of the flood and Noah. So how would Nephilim get on the earth after the flood apart from this demonic unions continuing to happen, which I believe God judged, and that happened no longer, and we no longer have Nephilim after the flood. So... There you go. If you disagree, amen. Praise the Lord that this is not fundamental for our salvation. It's just something the church has debated over for many, many years, but is not essential.
to our faith. So we kind of move on in this section. When the Lord saw that the wick, verse 5, when the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Isn't that just such a heart-wrenching verse to read? So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and the beast, creeping things and birds of the air. I am sorry that I've made them. But verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We see that Satan's plan for humanity through the fall, through the temptation and the fall, through 1,650 years, we see man grow more and more rebellious and evil against God. We see it to the point of demonic perversion with humanity. But what is so encouraging to understand and know as we read on in this story is that the enemy's plan has failed. That God's plan for the line of the Messiah has prevailed. And we read of this man, this man Noah, that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. During this time of perversion, during this time of wickedness, and violence on the earth. Man did sin continually. There was a man who was set apart, who experienced the touch of grace by God. And how he is set apart for the purposes of God is so beautiful to read about. He was a man who walked with God he was a man who experienced grace, and to understand this, it was not by Noah's good works and righteousness that God chose him and ordained him, but it was God's grace that produced in Noah an obedience and faith that responded to God. See, salvation is by grace alone. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There is no way man can be prepared for the coming judgment of the world apart from the grace of God compelling them. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah also, grace delivered him from the perverse and violent generation that he lived in. Evil was going to destroy mankind, but God preserved the man Noah because of his grace. Now think about that for a moment. Man left to its own vices will kill off humanity. We read of these stories in Genesis 
and understand as you truck through Genesis through Wednesday night study, through the Tower of Babel and, 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 and all that God is doing, see, this is God operating in grace to preserve. I promise you, if God didn't bring the judgment that he brought in the time of Noah, man was going to do it to themselves. Man was going to do it to themselves. Man will destroy themselves apart from God's preserving grace. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace delivered him. Noah, as I talked about of Enoch, Noah was a man who walked with God. This is something that Noah must have learned of because, again, only a few generations removed from firsthand account of his great-great-grandfather Enoch who walked with God, who was no more because God took him to walk with God is to experience relationship with God, to walk through life with him at your side every step of the way. Noah experienced a relationship God with God that was transformational and sanctified him apart from his neighbors as it speaks of here, that there was something so different about Noah. He was set apart. He was a man set apart for such a time as this. Verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. You hear that? Perfect in his generation. He was set apart. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on earth. Noting back to the first four chapter or first four verses of six is the emphasis in this chapter is the rebellious heart of man, not the rebelliousness of demons. And we need to understand and note that as we read through the context of this. God's focus here is pointing out the state of man and that all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. Its width shall be 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its inside and you shall make it 
with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing flood water on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which it in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. You shall go into the ark, your sons, your wife, and your sons and your wives with them. See, Noah was a man set apart for God's purpose. He was a man called He was a man who responded. He was a man set apart for such a time as this. God set Noah apart for his plans and his purposes. God gave Noah a time to prepare for what was to come. 120 years, he gave him time to build the ark. It's so interesting to think that 120-year period was not because man deserved more time, but because of God's grace and his hand upon Noah and to preserve Noah. Not only that, but we know God used Noah to preach repentance and salvation during this time for the coming judgment, that through the ark, God was going to preserve and save the righteous. Second Peter 2.5 calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you and your sons and your wives and your sons' wives. What we see here is that God, in making a covenant with Noah, We understand this story to be so much bigger than Noah in God's plan for redemption of humanity. It's so interesting to think that God uses judgment as a vessel and a tool to bring forth his plan of redemption. And he does it through Noah Verse 19, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort in the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, or the birds after their kind, the animals after their kind, and every creeping thing on the earth after the kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. They're coming to Noah. And Noah has a stored ship from God to preserve the life of animals, to preserve the coming life of all the lineage to which the Messiah is going to come. And you shall take for yourself all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. God's righteous judgment, as we read of it, Sometimes it makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes it does not sit easy with us. I remember in our equip class, 
we drew to the attention of the students when we see genocide in the Old Testament, when God calls the nation of Israel to bring judgment on other nations and to totally annihilate them and, and, and not leave anything alive. And let me tell you, when you read those stories, when you read the story of chapter 6, it doesn't settle very easily. See, God is a righteous judge. He is going to judge sin and evil. And the crazier part of that is man is somehow always surprised when he does it. Speaking of the time of Noah, and as we read on in these chapters in Genesis, what we will see is man is utterly caught off guard and has no idea that judgment is coming. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 24, verse 37, when he says this, but as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in, that, in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day of Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Judgment. God's righteous judgment on his evil, corrupt, and sinful creation. In the time of Noah, it caught him off guard. And in the time of the return of Christ, it's going to catch humanity off guard. And men and women will not be prepared. You think about that. There is going to be weddings happening the day before the return of Christ. There will probably be weddings happening at the very moment. Two individuals staring into each other's eyes, so excited for the future to come, but not prepared for what Jesus has planned in the judgment of the wicked and the judgment of the earth. In the days of Noah, they were so caught off guard the flood had come. Noah preaches righteousness, preaches, come, join me in this ark. You nutcase, what are you doing? Imagine if somebody built a boat in the middle of the desert and spoke of a flood coming. We would be convinced that person has a few screws loose and would have no desire to follow such a crazy individual. God is going to judge sin. God's righteousness is going to return. And he's going to judge the earth. And it is sad to think how many people are going to be so caught off guard and so surprised for what God has in store. The plans were bigger than Noah. We see that God is going to establish a covenant with Noah in verse 18, and his family, 
that the line of the Messiah was going to come through God's judgment of the world and preserving this righteous family to usher in the righteous one, Jesus. See, God prepared the righteousness or the righteous. God prepared the righteous for the coming judgment. As Noah walked with God, Noah heard firsthand of God's plan for a coming judgment. God will not judge the wicked with the righteous. Genesis 18 and Abraham's conversation with God about Sodom and Gomorrah testifies of that. We see in the scripture two ways that God preserves the righteous the righteous being, one, the rapture of the righteous, and we have examples in Enoch, we have examples of Lot, and we have the example of the church that God raptures or he, he, he takes out the righteous before the coming judgment. And we see biblicals, biblical examples of God's preservation of the righteous through the rapture. But that's not the only example we see. And the other is God sheltering the righteous. We see that example here with Noah, that he shelters him in an ark. We see that with the nation of Israel in Egypt with the Passover and the blood on the doorposts. That as God brings his judgment on the nation of Israel and their firstborn, he preserves or shelters the nation of Israel because of the blood of the, of the Passover lamb. The other example that we see of that is the 144 saints in the tribulation. That God shelters them. For Noah's obedience was building an ark. And through that ark, God shelters him from the coming judgment. That was Noah's experiencing this wonderful grace upon the righteous. So we should start building an ark. Amen? No! It blows my mind when I think of the people who put prepping shelters and spend, I mean, like, Thousands upon thousands of dollars in putting shelters in the ground. You ever watch those, like, shows about preppers, any of you? Or am I the only one that finds these YouTube videos late at night when I can't sleep? It, it always makes, it boggles my mind to think you are investing your time and hope in the wrong place for the coming judgment of God. And honestly, do you think a hole in the ground with metal is going to stop the wrath of God?
Obedience for Noah was building an ark. Obedience for us is not building an ark to prepare for the coming judgment. So if you've got a bunker in the ground, please invest your time in better things. Jesus prepares us for the coming judgment in so many scriptures in the New Testament. God told Noah, build an ark. God is telling us a whole nother story in his return. For Noah, it was building an ark. That's what his obedience was. That's what his faith story is. But let's not be like Noah in the sense of what we do, but in the character of our hearts, how we respond to God in obedient faith to his word and his commands. See, we see in many of the scriptures but I'm going to really focus on just a few and really how we're going to close out tonight as we wind down this message. How we finish this is this. Verse 22, and I believe it's the most special and important verse in this chapter and in this study. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Noah was a man of obedience. Noah's faith was not just belief in God bringing judgment, but an active faith in obedience to do something so crazy and so radical to invest the amount of time, energy, and resources to building an ark because he believed God and he had faith that God meant what he said he meant. Judgment was coming. He obeyed God. And if we're going to learn an important thing from Noah is that faith demands obedience. What I love about what Jesus did for us on the cross it points us to obedience. Romans 5.19 tells us of Jesus' obedience and how important this obedience was. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. We have an opportunity to be the many, to experience through the obedience of Christ to give his life on the cross, that in the death and resurrection of Christ through the obedience of the cross, in fulfilling the will of the Father, we can be made righteous through that atoning work. God preserved Noah through obedience And that obedience ultimately points us to the one whom obedience brought righteousness and redemption upon the world. The enemy did everything he could to stop that one man, that seed of the woman who was going to squash the head of the enemy and put to death 
on the cross, the curse that has separated us from God, from the garden, and from the disobedience of one, Noah's obedience points us to a greater obedience that we see fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And God preserved it, and God fulfilled it through his redemptive story. And it is a beautiful, beautiful story. I point us to this as we respond to his obedience with obedience to him. Because that's what this story does. It points us to a greater obedience as we learn from the character of Noah. 2 Peter 3, 4 through 11, this is so good. Speaking of how we are to respond in obedience to God's coming judgment and model Noah's obedience, it says this. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? Right? This is speaking of, of many who are going to be surprised when he returns. For since the, since the fathers fall asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the waters and in the waters, by which the world that they ex- existed perished, being flooded with water, speaking of the time of Noah, speaking of the time of Noah, and now pointing us. The time of Noah and the disobedience of man points us to how we are to learn from this story in the coming judgment of Jesus. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of the ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance Repentance, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, verse 11, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Faith demands obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. The life of faith is not just a life of belief, but a life of obedience. It's a life of doing and responding to God and his word. Be ye doers of the word. Amen.